If you've never had a nap in a hammock, I highly recommend it. Come on over if you don't have one, I'll let you use mine. I don't know what you thought of whenever uh, we were singing and having the kids section about what you've lost that you've been really happy to have back. I'll tell you a quick story, one from very recently from our family. We had a van that we bought back in South Dakota and we used as our primary family vehicle for a long time. Well, we bought our Traverse and we kind of used it as a storage vehicle, stuff that really didn't have a spot and eventually we used it and didn't really think much about what was in there. Well, we recently sold it and so we had to clean it out. I tell you, my kids' joy about rediscovering some of these toys, especially ones that they thought had been lost, they played with some of them, only, only those toys that were in the van for like the next week. Also, we found, I think it was 80 bucks or 60 or 80 bucks that was in the driver's side door that we forgot about, made parents happy. We were <laughs> celebratory about that. And I can't remember what we used it for, but we were like, hey, we can do this now. So it was a good day all around to rediscover some things that we didn't even know were lost, but yet we re-found. Last week we talked about in Luke chapter 14, a couple parables that Jesus taught while he was at the house of a Pharisee. And Luke chapter 15, which is where we're going to be today, continues that thread uh, just right where it picked off. As a matter of fact, Luke 14 all the way through Luke 17 is really one big long section of teaching, especially parabolic teaching, and it focuses on people who are lost particularly not necessarily by God, but by those who are lost by society. Luke 14 through 17 really focuses on the outcasts and Jesus' association with them, and therefore his condemnation, uh, people condemning him for associating with those, and then Jesus having to reteach those people who condemned him. No, this is where the kingdom is. We're going to continue very much in the same line of thought from the parable of the great banquet, about how the point of that parable is not who is invited or who ought to be there or should be there, but who will respond. And very much, these three parables, we're going to cover all three parables in Luke 15, so we've got quite a bit to cover today, but hopefully we won't go too fast, are right in line with that. Earlier, we had the parable of the prodigal son read, but I actually want to start back in the beginning of the chapter, Luke 15, Verse 1. Remember the context of this whole section, Luke 17, uh, 14 through 17, especially of chapter 15, is primarily around the Pharisees' refusal to associate with the outcasts, as well as them condemning Jesus' association with them. Remember, one of the basic definitions of Pharisee is that who is separate, that who is apart. And that's very much how they viewed themselves. They didn't view themselves as being um, those who would associate with the lowly of society or those who were the needy. They were the elite. They were the religious and societal elite. And then by definition, by being a Pharisee, meant you didn't hang out with certain people. Unfortunately, we still have some of those divisions today, but that's not the point of this sermon. Luke 15, verse 1. Read along with me, please, or it'll be up there on the, on the screen. I'm reading out of the English Standard Version. Now... The tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he, meaning Jesus, told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. A couple things about this, just so we can set the context here. And a couple comments before we delve into it. One, despite the amazing focus on shepherding, God is our shepherd, Jesus is our chief shepherd, shepherding was actually considered in those times a very lowly, even despised trade, especially among those who were of the more elite or the more financially able. You didn't have to go tend your own sheep. You could buy something from the market. Shepherding was a fairly lowly, despised trade which not only makes it all the more striking whenever God compares himself to his to being the chief shepherd of his people, which actually, I think, tells us where God wants to be. He wants to be right in the midst of his people, not high above or, or lording over, but right there in the midst. But whenever Jesus would start off with this analogy, imagine yourself, uh, what man of you having a hundred sheep? Oh, I'm a shepherd. This would have immediately, to the Pharisees and scribes, made them uneasy. Because it would have meant imagining themselves in an unclean trade, and they were very concerned about cleanliness. So immediately, Jesus is challenging one of their assumptions about who they ought to be, even if indirectly. Something also I want to point out here, too, is that sometimes a lot is made of, well, what about the other 99 sheep? Are they bad or are they good? The point of the parable is not what happens to the 99. In fact, we can assume the, the par parables are not concerned with details. They're concerned about making their point. We can assume that the 99 are taken care of, maybe left with another shepherd, maybe left in a fence. And notice that he doesn't condemn the 99. The 99 aren't bad. He calls them righteous. Now remember, righteousness is not necessarily if you act well or not. Righteousness is your standing before God. And so he's saying here that there are 99 people who are in good standing before God, or sheep in good standing with the shepherd, as the analogy goes. And yet there's one who has wandered off, there's one who has gone away. And Jesus says, wouldn't you, you would of course go after it. And when you found it, you would rejoice. You would bring home and you would call your neighbor and say, I lost one, but now he's back. You don't have to worry necessarily about the 99 because they are in good standing with either you as a shepherd or, as the analogy goes, these 99 are in good standing before God. The point of the parable is not about the 99, and so any focus on them is not the point of the parable. The focus is on the one. So what is Jesus doing here by defending the shepherd who will go after the one as opposed to the 99? Remember the context here. Jesus is absolutely and outrightly defending him receiving and eating with the outcasts and the sinners, in essence, the lost sheep of Israel. But also by saying that is who he's here to go and be with, he is demonstrating that the presence of the very kingdom itself is with them too. And the forgiveness that the kingdom offers is with them as well, and it's available to anyone and everyone. As I said before, he's also saying that 
this is the way that shepherding in the kingdom of God will take place. With his people and seeking after those who are lost, seeking after those who are not in good standing, seeking after those who are wandering and, and wayfaring where they shouldn't be. It's interesting, the Pharisees consider themselves to be in good standing before God. They consider themselves to be the religious elite. They consider themselves to be righteous. And in essence, they're saying, if this Messiah person is really the Messiah, why isn't he focusing on us? Why isn't he with us? And why is he with these, 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 these outcasts, these, these sinners? I think the point of this parable is really not only something we know very much about God, but the point of the parable is an indirect invitation for those whose attitudes don't match and reflect the character and nature of God, who does seek after, who does pay attention to, who does focus on those who are not in the kingdom, who are not part of his people, of his flock. An invitation for those who don't share that attitude to reconsider and to join the kingdom celebration. This parable teaches us that God values the least deserving of anyone and extends his shepherding and his care to even the least of those who wander. Jesus continues, though, this thought in verse 8 when he says, or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now this is very much in line with this parable of the lost sheep. It's very much the same. There's a few key differences, though. This is a lesser to a greater parable. Meaning, if this situation, which is lesser in value, in this case a woman and a coin she had, now we think this is a drachma, which is about a day's wage for a worker being a woman, she might have only even gotten a half day's wage. So every coin's important. But if a woman will celebrate and search so diligently for a coin, what's the greater is the implied question. If a woman will do this and celebrate, how much more will heaven, will God? It's interesting, one or two comments on this. The main character being a woman, I think, I don't think we need, this is not one to overemphasize being a parable, but it tells us of Jesus' sensitivity and value of the outcasts, especially in the society, including women. It tells, you of our, it tells us of his value for them, that he would make even a woman the main character of even a parable. Because this is a very patriarchal society, we have to remember. And women, unfortunately, were considered to be part of the outcasts of society. They were domestics, and their places weren't really to be main, char main characters of stories or teachings or of society. So the fact that Jesus very intentionally, and there's no dispute about that, very intentionally places a woman as being a central character tells us of his value and of his perspective of both genders. The coin, though, is not lost on its own, unlike the sheep, it can wander off, and it seems to be that she is so excited that she calls her together, her friends and neighbors rejoice with me. Some people get caught up in the details about, well, wouldn't she have to, to spend money in order to have a celebration? Not the point of the parable, guys. 
Not the point. What is the point? The point is, if a woman will search so diligently, and what she say? The three details here. Light a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently. This is a very uh, detailed parable for how short it is. If she will not put this much effort into seeking for a coin, and once she has found it rejoicing, how much more will God? How much more will God search and seek and light the way to find those who are seeking Him? But also, how much more will God celebrate when something, or rather someone, is restored to Him? God is a diligent, diligent searcher for those who are His, which are um, everyone. And celebrates when something's restored to Him. This parable very much teaches us about the nature of God, the diligence of God, but that the kingdom comes with limitless grace, even for those who denigrate it, who turn their nose up at it, and especially towards other people. And it tells us that joy and celebration must be part of that process, not only the joy of those who have been restored, but these parables tell us that joy is present in front of God Himself. And if it's present with God, how much more should it be with us? The trifecta continues, however, and this is really where this chapter comes to a head. <laughs> And this one we know very, very well, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, it's interesting, it's not really the parable of the prodigal son. Although that's what we often call it. Why? Because the parable isn't just about the prodigal, is it? I know it was already read. But I want to go through here and highlight a couple of things as I read. Starting in verse 11 of Luke chapter 15. And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. Now, he in essence is asking for his inheritance, which he would receive whenever his father died. Generally, the elder son would get double share. And so being two sons here, his older son would get two-thirds of the estate completely. He would get one-third of the estate. And he said he divided his property between them. This is out of line in this society. Uh, he's basically saying, you know, some people even say maybe he even wants his father dead. I don't think he goes quite that far. But he's basically saying, look, I want the benefit of being your son, but I don't really want you. I want the benefit. I want what I will gain by being your son, but I don't really want you as a father. And his father gives it to him. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his field to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the paws of the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. He leaves a respectable operation, in essence. Uh, agriculture was very, very highly 
thought of. He leads a respectful operation, dishonors his father, and goes off where he wants to, squanders his money, with pigs no less, and as a Jew, pigs were the uncleanest of unclean in a sense. Uh, even being around them, pig farmers just, I mean, we could go on and on and on about how bad a situation this is. In many ways. And this has been very much uh, preached on, and, and you can find a lot about this. I'm not going to spend too much detail on these details, because the point of the parable actually isn't this story. When he came to himself, I, I love that phrase, when he came to himself, he basically has a moment of going, I have made a horrible mistake. <laughs> he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? And I will arise and go to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Now stop right there for a second. What I want you to see here is that this is actually very much the story of Israel. Actually, this is taken really from the prophets. This is taken from Hosea 2, Hosea 11. We're not going to go into these uh, passages right now. I invite you to look them up and read them. Basically, it's the story of Israel who was gifted and given everything by God. Remember Isaiah 5 with the vineyard? The vineyard that has been given, been given anything and everything to succeed, and yet they have taken it and they have squandered it. They have... In the prophets, they have whored themselves out to other nations and other idols. So not only have they given themselves, given everything they had away, they have literally given themselves away. Ezekiel 16 talks about Israel's unfaithfulness, how they've dishonored God. This is Israel's story. And I guarantee you that the Pharisees would have known this. And so as Jesus is talking, the Pharisees would be saying, all right, we see where you're going. And especially in this moment of repentance, the Pharisees would be like, yes, we are the younger son. And they have a feeling where this is going. And so it's probably no surprise whenever, in verse 20, and he arose and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now, in the culture for a for a, for a older man to hike up his robes and run was very considered very disgraceful very improper but this is this is saying how much emotion he had about this and the son said father i have sinned against heaven and before you i no longer worthy to be called your son but the father said to his servants bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and it's found, and they began to celebrate. A couple cultural things here. Uh, ring in his hand considered, was considered to be kind of the anointed or kind of a chosen one, uh, a blessed one. Shoes, having no shoes was considered to be a dishonor. You were, you were very lowly. So all these details here are, are relating to the culture. But this is also hearkening back to, once again, to Old Testament in Ezekiel 37, the valley of the dry bones that were dead and that came back to life. This language of the father saying, from this my son was dead and is alive again. Not so much looking forward to Jesus' resurrection, but looking back to Israel being enslaved and, and killed, in a sense, in, in slavery and exile and being restored, resurrected, if you will, by God. This is all Israel's story. 
that the Pharisees are going, yes, we know, and this is the difference, the Pharisees will go, yes, we know that God accepts us because we are his chosen people. We know that God will bring us back because we're his chosen people. We know this. We deserve to have a seat and deserve to be celebrated because we're his people. But the thing is, the parable doesn't end there. Verse 25, Now his older son was in the field, and he came and drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. This was embarrassing to the father. And embarrassing to the elder brother, as a matter of fact, because as the elder brother, he would have had a lead in familiar relations and situations. For him not to go in is an insult and a slight to his father, to his brother. Embarrassing for him. He really means something by not going in. But his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I may celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your prophets, property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. Your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Here's the thing I want to offer you this, this morning. The point of the parable is not the prodigal. Even though the prodigal is the story of Israel, and even though the prodigal is the story of every person who was lost to God and who has been redeemed, but the point of the parable is about the father and the elder son. One attitude is joyous, running towards repentant sinners, embracing them and celebrating their return to him versus those who not only refuse to rejoice but disparage the attention and effort and celebration and even disparage those sinners who have come back. It's a contrast of attitudes, brothers and sisters, don't you see? Celebration or disdain. You see, the, the Pharisees would have seen themselves in the younger son who have been restored, but yet they're also, in Jesus' teaching, supposed to see themselves in the elder brother as those who refuse to celebrate with those whom God celebrates, and Jesus is inviting them to change that attitude. and therefore also us. Purpose of these parables, brothers and sisters, here's where you want to, if you want to write notes, I have three things for you. The point of these parables is one, to emphasize the compassion and love of Father God, who wants everyone to be restored back to Him. Everyone, which means everyone, not just those who have come and fallen away, but everyone at once was created by God Everyone is loved by God. There's not a person you can meet who is not loved by God. And God's love and compassion extends to them too. Number two, these parables offer us an invitation 
to celebrate and rejoice not just God's work but with God himself who is rejoicing and celebrating these things. And number three and perhaps the most striking is that it's an invitation for everyone to consider that if God accepts such people then complaints or misgivings about being around those people, being with those people, celebrating them and coming to the kingdom, the people Jesus would be around are completely misguided. These parables are not necessarily missional, but yet they should change our mission from not only accepting such sinners when they happen to come back, but wanting to go search for them, find them, bring them back into the fold, and celebrate whenever they are. They are here whenever they come back to God. How often are we the elder brother? How often are we the Pharisees? And not the sheep, not the coin, and not the prodigal. The prodigals are not the other people. But the thing is, neither is the elder brother. These parables offer an invitation to return to our true selves of being ones who are close to God, who God seeks and finds and wants to be with and draws close. Those who return to God and be embraced in celebration but then rejoice with each other and God as others come back into the fold. Do we act like this? Do we act like either the woman, or the shepherd, or the father in these parables? Do we emulate the characteristics of God of wanting to seek, diligently seek, rejoice? Do we have to wait for a famine in order to celebrate? Brothers and sisters, these parables are meant to ask us questions. There's a lot of questions I think we could ask of ourselves in these parables. I invite you to dwell on what questions are raised in your own minds from these parables. And feel free to send them in, post on Facebook, and ask of each other. But I ask you these three things. One, are you one of the lost who are considering who God is and who want to be found, God is seeking after you. Two, if you are part of the sheep of the flock of the 99, or you are part of the nine that weren't lost, if you are part of the family which didn't, has not, is currently with God, are you part of the search effort? Are you part of the celebration? And three, who would make you the elder brother, and why? Who would make you the Pharisees, and why? Who would you not be comfortable with coming to church, and why? Who would you not be comfortable seeking, and why? Here's an invitation for all of us, all of us individually, and all of us in the church, to reframe who we are to be like God, he who seeks, who finds, and who celebrates.
We must celebrate and we must seek. We must be like God, not just in ways of righteousness and truth, but of joy and of celebration, of fulfilling our mission, of seeking those sheep who have wandered away, seeking the coin which was lost, and rejoicing with our brothers and sisters who have come to God. Who are we in these parables, and who can we be tomorrow? Grace to you all.